Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. And today we're going to talk about a very influential and awesome lady mathematician and astronomer. Her name was Hypatia and she lived in Alexandria. She was a mathematician, astronomer, and philosopher, and although none of her original writings have survived until today, we do know that she wrote at least one book on astronomy and two on math. She also taught and lectured, and she she developed a whole following of her own devoted students, and she really helped preserve the knowledge of other scholars like Euclid and Ptolemy. She was one of the earliest female mathematicians and astronomers, and even though she wasn't the very first woman ever to study these fields, she was definitely the best-known woman in antiquity to pursue them. She was also among the greatest. At the time of her murder, she was the foremost mathematician and astronomer in the West, and possibly in the entire world. Go Hypatia. I know. She's fantastic. Uh, there's no clear record of when Hypatia was born. Her year of birth uh, used to often be cited as 370, but today most scholars will generally say it was closer to 350 or 355. But it's still all pretty speculative. It's based on events we know she and her father witnessed and how old they might have been at the time, and also the age of her most famous pupil, Synesius of Cyrene. We also know basically nothing about her early life. And we don't know who her mother was. It's possible that Hypatia had a brother named Epiphanius. His name crops up in some of her father's writings, but he might have just been a favorite student of her father's. The translation could really go either way. Hypatia's father, Theon, was also a mathematician and astronomer, and he was the last known member of the Alexandrian Museum. This museum was not a building of exhibits and collections as we would think of a museum today. It was more akin to a university or a research center. And it also housed the famed library at Alexandria, which contained about half a million scrolls, including Aristotle's entire personal collection, archives of Greek plays, original editions of scholarly writings, etc. And when people came to the library, they would copy any scrolls they had with them and leave them there. Uh, most of the physical buildings that made up the museum were actually destroyed by 272. And it's unclear exactly when the library was destroyed, but its work in preservation and education actually continued for quite a while after that. Yes, there was a lot of destruction and rebuilding and moving things around. So it's a little unclear exactly when all of those buildings Yeah, the timeline gets really fuzzy. Yes, uh, but the work that the museum was doing in in terms of educating people and preserving knowledge did continue on for for quite a while after the buildings were probably also all gone. Um, Theon's own work was also really about preservation and teaching. Euclid's works survived in part thanks to Theon's efforts. Um, One of Euclid's most important and influential works was called Elements. And until the 19th century, the only edition of this book that existed was Theon's edition. Theon also wrote commentaries on some of Ptolemy's works. Um, These were basically copies of the original piece with explanations and additional notes. So while Theon wasn't like a groundbreaking new mathematician coming up with all kinds of new mathematical concepts, 
he was really preserving ideas of earlier mathematicians and making sure that they survived for later generations to learn from. He's like the first archivist. And not, maybe not the first, but that was really what his work was all about. Yeah. Theon and Hypatia also work together. It's actually possible that book three of his commentary on Ptolemy's Almagest, which is a 13-volume astronomical manual, was really written by Hypatia. His inscription says it was, quote, prepared by her. So, yes, it's a little unclear whether she did the actual writing on it. Um, so it's possible that writing of hers exists, but we don't really know. Yeah. This was really hers or her father's or how exactly she was involved in creating it. Yeah, the attribution is not absolute on that one. Right. When Theon died, he was regarded as the world's foremost mathematician. And after his death, that distinction passed on to his daughter. She continued on with his tradition of teaching and preserving mathematical knowledge and writing her own books and commentaries. And in point of fact, uh, according to historical accounts, Hypatia far surpassed her father's accomplishments. She was said to be profoundly intelligent. She was articulate, prudent, community-minded, and to top it all off, apparently also beautiful. Yes. Full package. Socrates Scholasticus, also known as Socrates of Constantinople, not the classical philosopher Socrates, a different person with the same name, described her this way, quote, There was a woman at Alexandria named Hypatia, daughter of the philosopher Theon, who had made such attainments in literature and science as to far surpass all the philosophers of her own time. Having succeeded to the school of Plato and Plotinus, she explained the principles of philosophy to her auditors, many of whom came from a distance to receive her instructions. On account of the self-possession and ease of manner which she had acquired in consequence of the cultivation of her mind, she not infrequently appeared in public in presence of the magistrates. Neither did she feel abashed in coming to an assembly of men, for all men on account of her extraordinary dignity and virtue admired her the more. High praise. She was extremely highly respected. Yeah. There, there are many people who, for one reason or another, did not like her. Uh, that Those reasons also often boiled down to religion. Uh but even so, like the praise of her mind and her ability and her presentation is pretty much universal among all accounts. If only everyone could enjoy such delights. I know. Um, I mean, that's really that's incredibly high praise. I can't think of a single like public figure now that you could say that of. Right. There's there's no one that's universally like everyone respects them, even if they disagree with them. There's always some, you know rah-rah about the whole thing. Right. Anyway, uh, we also know from surviving letters that Hypatia had the skill and knowledge to craft scientific devices like astrolabes and what was called a hydroscope, although we're not sure what the hydroscope did exactly. We just know there was a thing called that. Yes. And, and that it had to do with astronomy. And that she could figure out how to make one. Um, primary sources almost unanimously describe her as never marrying and leading an entirely celibate life. Uh, So much so that the one reference that does exist to her having a husband named Isidorus is mostly written off as an error today. There was also a historical person named Isidorus, but he died before she lived. She was definitely not married to that guy. Like, there has been no other candidate for who this Isidorus might have been. So pretty much all the scholars who look at all of this think that, like, that was one 
person's error right. in writing a bi- biography of her. Because everyone else. Right. And we do know that those kinds of errors happen in transcription when people are copying down records into other books and stuff. It happens all the time in history. Yes. That's part of sort of... Uh, unraveling history a lot of the time is figuring out which accounts are factual and which ones are either embellished or accidentally incorrect. Right. From the early encyclopedia known as the Suda, there's a quote that says, she was so very beautiful and attractive that one of those who attended her lectures fell in love with her. He was not able to contain his desire, but he informed her of his condition. Ignorant reports say Hypatia relieved him of his disease by music, but truth proclaims that music failed to have any effect. She brought some of her female rags and threw them before him, showing him the sign of her unclean origin and said, You love this, O youth, and there is nothing beautiful about it. His soul was turned away by shame and surprise at the unpleasant sight, and he was brought to his right mind. I love this story so much. (laughs) Oh, I, I both love it and have that... You know, hi, Pacia. You're so smart. Why you got to hate this thing about yourself? Well, and that <laughs> uh, one of one of the books that I read about hi, Pacia, did get into that about how to a, a modern woman's ear. Yeah, you you do kind of. But when you look uh, historically uh, at at the world of women's bodies and women's physiology, even at the time that like uh, a girl's first period was sometimes viewed as a magical thing. Mm. Uh, so this whole story may be more about power than about, look how gross this is. Yeah. Well, and she also was moving in circles that were almost entirely male. So yes. that probably informed her uh, yes. view on things. If I were in Hypatia's shoes and I wanted a dude to get away from me, <laughs> that might be a thing. <laughs> that might be a weapon at my disposal. Uh, yeah. Uh <laughs> Sadly, Hypatia lived at a time when the intellectual life in which she so obviously excelled was quickly crumbling and disappearing. Uh, And her life and her accomplishments are often overshadowed by her death. And understanding how that came to be requires some understanding of what was going on politically and socially in Alexandria at the time. The Greek city of Alexandria had been founded in Egypt during the reign of Alexander the Great about 600 years before Hypatia's birth in 331 BCE. It really quickly became a renowned place of learning, knowledge, literature, and culture. It was really one of the great intellectual centers of the world. Ptolemy was Alexandria's founder and first ruler. And Ptolemy sort of co-opted the Egyptian god Serapis, which was a god of the underworld, as a sun god to be worshipped in Alexandria. And he built a temple to him. That temple will be important uh, in just a bit. Rome annexed Alexandria in 80 BCE. And it continued to be governed by the pharaohs until Cleopatra's death 50 years later. Although it became governed by Rome at this point, Alexandria really continued to be a heavily Greek city with very Greek traditions and culture. Before the advent of Christianity, both pagans and Jews lived in Alexandria. And Christianity was introduced to Alexandria very early in the religion's history. The Apostle Mark founded the first Christian church in Alexandria in the year 48. And Christianity spread over the next few hundred years, becoming the dominant and eventually official religion of the Roman Empire. By the time Hypatia was born, things were not going well in Alexandria. Christianity, Judaism, and paganism, which was kind of a blanket characterization for people who were neither Christian nor Jewish, 
were they were not exi- coexisting harmoniously. There was really a lot of hostility among the religions, and the Roman Empire at the same time was in decline. On top of that, ongoing civil wars were leading to the destruction of Alexandria's libraries uh, and other important buildings and all of the knowledge that they contained. In 364, the Roman Empire split into the Eastern and Western Empires, and Alexandria became part of the Eastern Empire, and life there started to go rather sharply downhill. There was constant conflict between the people of different religions and philosophies, and the civil government was constantly at odds with the leadership of all of these various religions. So it was really just a hotbed and a morass of anger and dismay. So much. And there was also internal strife within Christianity as well. It was still a relatively new religion at this point, and some people were considering some views to be orthodox and others heretical. Without getting into too long of a digression on the particulars, the orthodox Christians were the ones who believed everything outlined in the Nicene Creed, which was originally drafted in the Council of Nicaea in 325. The, quote, heretical Christians disagreed with one or more of the specific tenets that's laid out in the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed was further revised and expanded over the next 125 years, and it's still one of the major statements of Orthodox faith in Christianity today. So there was really huge strife within Christianity between the people who believed all of the Nicene Creed and the people who took issue with one or more parts of it. Yeah, you're a heretic by virtue of disagreeing with one part of it, basically. That was pretty much what was going on. Yeah, yeah. it was a pretty black and white split. Yeah, well, and the Nicene Creed was basically set down as an, the official, this is what we believe right. statement. That's basically what it is. And so the people who did not believe in one of those things were viewed with all kinds of like heretical anger. Sus- suspicion and suspicion contempt. Suspicion and contempt are totally what was going on. In 391, the emperor ordered that all pagan temples be destroyed. Theophilus, the archbishop, carried these orders out, and he destroyed the temple to Serapis that Ptolemy had built, which at this point was being used to house the last remnants of the museum's work. Most scholars really mark this as the final nail in the museum's coffin. Like, this was really the end of that institution. Yeah, that appears to be when the work of the museum ceased, even though the buildings themselves were pretty much gone before that. In 412... Theophilus's nephew Cyril, who later became St. Cyril of Alexandria, succeeded him as the archbishop. Cyril was even less tolerant of other religions than his uncle had been, and he was constantly fighting with Orestes, who was the prefect, basically Alexandria's governor. And Orestes was also Christian, but he was a more tolerant flavor of Christian than St. Cyril was. At this point, tensions in Alexandria, which had already been high for many years at this point, really started to escalate. And then two years later, a group of Jewish extremists massacred a number of Christians by setting fire to one of the major churches in the middle of the night and then slaughtered the Christians who came to try to put out the fire. In response, Cyril decided to drive the Jews out of Alexandria and riots immediately followed. Attempts at reconciliation failed. And tensions between Cyril and the Christians versus Orestes and the secular government just got worse and worse. At one point, a monk named Ammonius tried to kill Orestes by throwing a stone at his head during a brawl. Ammonius was then arrested and tortured to death. 
Over the objections of a lot of his followers, Cyril canonized Ammonius, which sort of implicated him in this whole assassination attempt. This did not reflect well on Cyril, and Orestes came out looking like the victor in the whole situation. So to bring it all back to Hypatia, we knew, or we know that Hypatia and Orestes knew one another. Orestes often came to her for advice and counsel. So in the aftermath of the dispute between Cyril and Orestes, Hypatia apparently became something of a target for Christian zealots. She was also a Neoplatonist, so she fell under that broad pagan umbrella uh, and was consequently a target for persecution. Right. She apparently didn't write down a lot of her philosophical writings. She lectured a lot, but didn't record a lot of that in writing. So we don't know a lot of the particulars of what her beliefs were. But everyone pretty much agrees that she was a Neoplatonist. And since she got lumped in with the bigger, quote, pagan group, sorting out any of it is probably a little bit of, yeah. of a trick. Yeah. So in March of 415, or possibly 416, during Lent, a mob of Christian zealots led by a man named Peter the Lector attacked the carriage that Hypatia was traveling in. They pulled her out of it and dragged her into a nearby church. And once there, they stripped her naked and beat her to death with roof tiles. After that, they dismembered her body and burned the pieces. We'll just let that sit for a minute. Yeah, it's so gruesome and savage. It's gruesome and savage, and it's like all of the accounts. Some of them kind of use different words for for what was used to beat her to death, but the the account is pretty much the same in all the historical sources. (sighs) Okay. Uh, Mathematics professor Ari Belenke theorizes a more specific cause for the mob's targeting of Hypatia, that it actually had to do with when to celebrate Easter, which, according to the First Council of Nicaea, falls on the first Sunday after the first full moon on or after the spring equinox. Thanks to its astronomical tradition, Alexandria was responsible for setting the exact dates for Easter which the rest of Rome followed. But Belenke speculates that Hypatia calculated that the equinox would fall on a different date than the one Alexandria was actually using, which would embarrass the Alexandrian church and cause it to lose face before the rest of Rome. So So it's really much more of an astronomy intrigue story from that point of view. Right. And that 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 is one of those things that uh, I can see where we would get to that conclusion, but it's not something that is actually cited in any of the historical uh, sources. Uh, but Alexandria and the rest of Rome did celebrate Easter on two completely different dates. Yeah. Uh, in, in 417. So if, if this did, if it was a precursor, that, that seems to be a little piece of evidence, but it's not something that's actually referenced in historical sources. Yeah. It's like a piece together. It's a fairly well thought out theory based on circumstantial evidence. Yes. But there's no hard case file on it. Right. And regardless of what the root cause was for Hypatia to be targeted, the general consensus today is also that St. Cyril, as he later became, was not directly involved in her death, but that his actions did really inflame the tensions that led up to it. After Hypatia's death, the tradition of education and knowledge in Alexandria pretty much died out. Uh, most of what remains of the scholarly traditions of Alexandria we have uh, is thanks to the Arabs who captured Alexandria uh, roughly 200 years after all of this was over. And many of the Greek documents that still exist are in the form of translations into Arabic. Yes. 
Uh, and it's not that suddenly everyone was stupid after <laughs> no. after Hypatia died, but she had really been at that point uh, the keystone in this intellectual tradition. Uh, and once she died, there was not an immediate new person to take over. And based on what the climate was like socially and politically in Alexandria at that point, other cities easily moved into like into a higher rung of you know what's the smartest place, right? Uh, because it was not a good time to be a scholar in, in Alexandria anymore. In the words of the poet Pallidus of Alexandria, writing in the 4th or 5th century, quote, Revered Hypatia, ornament of learning, stainless star of wise teaching, when I see thee and thy discourse, I worship thee, looking on the starry house of the Virgin, for thy business is in heaven. So pretty. Uh-huh. A lovely uh, memorial to her. Yeah. She comes up frequently in lists of important women in science and philosophy. Yeah. Uh, she's, as well she should. Yes. Yeah, so, as we said before, there you know there were certainly female scholars before Hypatia, but she was the first, uh, especially in the, in the Western world, truly famous female scholar about whom we have a pretty large amount of information. Yeah. I love her. Uh, it is not surprising at all that now there are, you know, uh, there are journals, academic journals named after her and yeah. conferences and things like that. So, By chance, do you also have some listener mail for us? I have two pieces of listener mail. Ooh. Uh, we are going to read them both because they are both about wonderful animals. Uh, they are both about our recent episode about Felicia the Ferret. And we're going to start with this email that we got from Cynthia. Cynthia says, hi, ladies, I loved your episode featuring Felicia the ferret and the animals of the Fermi National Accelerator Laboratory. Last year, I worked as a communications intern at the lab and had the great honor of living on site at the laboratory dorms. Since many of the lab's experiments take place underground, Fermilab has worked very hard to restore most of their campus to its original prairie state before European settlement. Not only is the prairie restoration involved an important plant and animal conservation work, it's a very beautiful place to live, work, or visit. I'd encourage anyone in the area to take a drive through the laboratory grounds and visit the Letterman Science Center. Living in the dorms right next to bison was an amazing experience, and I regularly saw coyotes, foxes, deer, and other wildlife. I think it's wonderful how many of the world's top physicists working at the cutting edge of science have come together to preserve this little slice of nature near Chicago. Thank you so much for covering Fermilab in your podcast. Thank you so much for that letter. That's so cool. I know. We were so happy to hear that. And I agree. I, that's what drew me to the story in the first place is the fact that it is all these scientists who are also kind of into animal preservation. And animals. Again, it's a story about science and animals and there's no torture. I know. There's no like unpleasant. There's no dogs in space forever. No. There's it's no good stuff. chimpanzees. It's just good stuff. Uh, and then another, and another wonderful piece of mail. This is an actual card that we got in the mail, and it has number one, adorable animals on it. Um, <laughs> there are there are rabbits and guinea pigs and, and a little weasel. Uh, it's, it's super duper cute, uh, and it is from Corey. And Corey says, "Dear Tracy and Holly, I just listened to your podcast about Felicia the ferret and wanted to let you know a lot has changed in the ferret world since we were kids." I'm happy to hear this. Yes. 
Uh, she goes on, I work in Indiana's oldest and only exotic animal specialty veterinary clinic, and our doctor has been seeing ferrets since they first began to appear on the pet market. She says that back then they made terrible pets for children, would bite all the time, and she wasn't even able to pick them up without thick leather gloves. Then, about 20 years ago, Marshall's Farms ferrets really started to take off. These breeders began selecting only the nicest and gentlest ferrets for their breeding stock, and the result today is that bites from ferrets are extremely rare, and I I wouldn't hesitate to hand a ferret to any child now. There is a downside to all the selective breeding. Ferrets have a much higher incidence of congenital disorders and much shorter lifespans as well. They are also spayed and neutered at a very young age and tends to be much smaller than intact ferrets. Unfortunately, nothing can be done about the smell, though, which is why I will never have a ferret. Sincerely, Corey. <laughs> so the, definitely the, the when I was a child and being like, I want a ferret, and seeing ferrets in the Science Center who were kind of bitey and mean and all of that, that was definitely earlier than the 20-year-ago introduction of much nicer, gentler ferrets. Yeah. Uh, and if you heard the kind of chuckle in my voice that was talking about selecting the gentlest ferrets for the breeding stock, that's because I'm thinking, of course, that is what we should do if we want to have nice ferrets. Yeah. To breed the nice ferrets. Yeah. With each other. Yeah. Uh, so I also really loved hearing this more information. And she drew us pictures of ferrets in the car. That's so great. It's a really fun car. There are little ferret sketches. They're cute, cute, cute. Uh, this was definitely like a good mail day. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> when we got this one. For sure. And I, I mean, I uh, as for the smell, I have friends that have ferrets, and I think you know if you're very, very fastidious about it, you can keep that to a bare minimum. So I don't like walk in their house. house and go, "Ooh, ferret house." Well, and you know, we both have cats. Yeah, uh-huh. I have a cat that you can't touch at the vet without gloves, or it will bite you. So <laughs> it's, this is not a ferret hate scenario. No. <laughs> No, and I wasn't trying to suggest that ferrets are terrible animals. No, they're adorable. They're so cute. When I was a child, people cautioned me about them being bitey and smelly. Yeah, and I want all the weird animals to be my friends, so. That's cool, too. If a penguin walked in, I'd try to befriend it. (laughs) Snake, no problem. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, You know, I've been playing a game called Don't Starve a yeah. lot. It's one of my favorite games to play right now. And and you can tweak your settings of the world when you build it. Mine is currently set to lots of pigs. Huh. Yes, you can have fewer pigs, normal pigs, uh, more pigs, lots of pigs. I have the maximum number of pigs. I will want to talk to you at length later about how that affects the outcome of the game. I will totally get into that. And okay. If, if, this were, if this were our prior podcast pop stuff, we might have a whole episode on it. But we don't. <laughs> About pigs and video games. About pigs and video games and how they change the gameplay. Anyway, thank you all for indulging us with that digression. If you would like to write to us about video game pigs or ferrets or Hypatia or any other subject, you may. We are at historypodcast.discovery.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash historyclassstuff and on Twitter at mistinhistory. Our Tumblr is at mistinhistory.tumblr.com, and we are also on Pinterest. If you'd like to learn more about what we talked about today, you can come to our website. Put the word Hypatia into the search bar. You will find the article, Five Female Scientists You Should Know, by our wonderful colleague Kristen of Stuff Mom Never Told You. You can do all of that and a whole lot more at our website, which is howstuffworks.com. 
For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Netflix streams TV shows and movies directly to your home, saving you time, money, and hassle. As a Netflix member, you can instantly watch TV episodes and movies streaming directly to your PC, Mac, or right to your TV with your Xbox 360, PS3, or Nintendo Wii console, plus Apple devices, Kindle, and Nook. Get a free 30-day trial membership. Go to www.netflix.com and sign up now.